Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to Revelation 7, we're going to pick up the parable where we left off last week. Uh, remember, Revelation is the final book in the scripture, as uh, Pastor Phil said this morning. Here's about how many verses in Revelation? We've mentioned it. 404. 400 verse, four verses in scripture. It's probably one of the most studied books in the New Testament and the Old Testament canon. It's probably also one of the most misunderstood, misinterpreted books in the Bible as well. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, it divides into three parts. The past, the present, and the future. Chapter 1 reveals John's past. It's the immediate revelation he had of the exalted, glorified Christ. Chapters 2 to 3 talks about the present. John's era, he was looking at the seven churches, the seven letters to the seven churches that Jesus wrote to his churches regarding their behavior. And chapters 4 to 22 are all about the future. So we're going to be, as you recall, we're in now chapters 4 to 22, we're about the future. The last couple of weeks we've been in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Chapters 4 and 5 were the scene from the worship of heaven. We see Jesus Christ on the throne, the God the Father, the exalted one lifted up on the throne, the worship of heaven, the seven-sealed scroll. And we mentioned a couple weeks ago that God gives us a picture of heaven so we'll have perspective when you see the judgments on earth. Because when you, if you just jumped into Revelation 6 through 18 and saw the great tribulation, most of us would lose our cookies and open our veins with a rusty scalpel because it's pretty scary stuff, right? <laughs> so we have a picture of heaven, chapters 4 and 5, to get an accurate perspective of one thing that's incredibly important to remember. Almighty God is completely in control of everything that happens in this book. Now, as we went last week, we opened the sixth of the, the sealed judgments. There were six seals in chapter 6 you realize that God is literally repossessing his universe, and in order to do that, he's going to dismantle it. So if your home is here, you better get ready to move, because this place is going away. Got it? I don't know when, but it's going to happen. So God's repossessing his planet, and the seven-sealed scroll we saw last week, we said was God's pat battle plan to destroy evil and take back his planet from that usurper Satan. People typically view the judgments in Revelation, especially 6 through 22, partly with fascination. Oh my gosh, can you believe that? Partly with dread. Oh, the world's going to end as we know it. Where am I going to you know, set up my tent? I got to move my RV someplace else because this planet's gone. And then the other one is, I can't believe this. There's no way this is going to happen, right? It's unbelief. See, in our heart of hearts, we all know that we've broken God's law. We're all sinners. But sinners don't naturally run to God to forgiveness. Like Adam and Eve, what do we do? We hide. We run away from God in fear as, as opposed to faith. So people many, many times pretend that God doesn't exist and they believe in the doctrine of uniformitarianism, which is a very fancy way of saying, as things have been in the past, they will continue to be in the present. Correct? and ongoing into the future. So life is very, very predictable. Understand that things are going to change and dramatically change, and this book details those changes. 2 Peter 3, verses 3 to 4. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, probably pretty clear we're in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, the 2 Peter 3, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? 
For ever since the fathers, that's history, long history, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. The central theme in Revelation is the coming king. Jesus is coming back. Second Peter said there's going to be societies that are filled with people that go, he ain't coming back. He hasn't come back in thousands of years. He's not coming back. Life is going to go on just like it always has. Have you heard this line? Well, tomorrow will be a little bit mostly like yesterday. And you know something? A lot of times that's true. But many times it's not true. Sometimes tomorrow is dramatically different than today. Mockers will always believe that Jesus is not going to come back and hold them accountable because we don't want to be held accountable. Life is always going to go on just like it is now. Revelation tells us utterly clearly and distinctly that the future is not going to be like the past. It is going to be dramatically different from the past. Jesus is coming back, not as a suffering servant, but as the conquering king. He's going to repossess his planet, and he's going to rule his planet, and the rules of the game are going to be very, very different, because this earth does not belong to man. This earth does not belong to Satan. What does Scripture say? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And you know what everything in it includes? You and me and people running for office and people working in office buildings. It's everybody. He owns everything and everybody. So Revelation is a very shocking portrait from a human point of view because it reveals the end of the current world system. Everything you thought you knew about planet Earth, when Jesus comes back, is going to change. It's going to dramatically change. And that's one of the reasons this book is viewed with a, a sense of fascination and a sense of dread. Because our broken and sinful universe is going to be destroyed by our holy God. Here's the principle. God is both holy and merciful. This is the key idea. God's holiness hates sin. He's going to destroy sin. But God's mercy loves people, so he restrains his judgment to give people time to repent and be saved. So remember, God is both holy, he hates sin, and he's merciful, so he restrains judgment, he withholds it for a time to give people time to repent. If God is holy and good, he has to judge evil. He can't tolerate evil. He can't live with evil. A judge that fails to execute justice is no longer a just judge. You know, when 9-11 occurred, I heard this over and over and over again. Why didn't God stop this evil from happening? If God is all-powerful and all-good, then why would he allow evil to exist? The answer is God hates evil, but he loves people. If God destroyed evil today, he would have to destroy evil people today, right? You know who's evil people? Yeah, me. I'm the head of that list. That's everyone. The Bible says, how many have sinned? All have sinned. There is none that does good. Everyone who sins deserves death. God's love for sinful people is what causes him to withhold judgment for a time. Not forever. The day is coming when God is going to be done with tolerating sinful human behavior. 2 Peter 3.9. 2 Peter 3 is just a good chapter for you to read. 
It says, the Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, here's a real key thought. Don't ever confuse God's tolerance for your sin with his patience with you. God is patient with you, but he's not tolerant of your sin. Just because he hasn't brought the hammer of judgment down on your little head over sin doesn't mean he tolerates your sin. Understand? It means he's exercising mercy by restraining the consequences of some of our sinful behavior. By the way, those of you who are in Christ, are your sins forgiven? Yes, they're forgiven. God is still very, very patient with us. He does not tolerate our sin even though he withholds judgment. The problem is the world misinterprets that. Because God is restraining, God is holding his judgment back, God is giving time to repent, people say, well, he doesn't take my sin seriously. It's obviously not a big deal. Else he'd come and deal with it right now. Well, the book of Revelation says in his perfect time, he's going to deal with it. He's, and he will thoroughly cleanse his threshing floor because there's going to be nothing left, right? God gives people time to repent because he loves them, but the day is coming when he's going to judge evil for all, once and for all. However... As you're going to see in this chapter, even in judgment, God shows mercy. This is stunning to me. You know, throughout the book of Revelation, we talked a couple weeks ago that God's judgments become progressively more severe, right? And they become progressively more frequent. Remember it says like birth pangs? I told you how much I knew about labor pains, right? What I've been told by people in the know, ladies, is that birth pangs come increasingly frequently. Yes? Yes. And increasingly more severe, yes, okay. So they're telling you something's going to take place. A birth is going to happen. As we mentioned a couple weeks ago, God's kingdom is being born, and the labor pains are the judgments at that point. But when God gradually increases the severity of his judgment, he's showing mercy. He's giving you time to repent. You know, it's like your, your parents says, if you do this, you get one swat. If you do this, you get four swats. If you do this, you know, you go to the hospital. I'm kidding. <laughs> You've never threatened your children with that? <clears throat> you won't walk for a week when I get done with you. So God, in mercy, he ratchets up the pain of the judgment to give us time to repent, right? He doesn't drop the hammer all at once. I mean, if he drops the hammer all at once, there's no time to repent. But so in his mercy, he increases severity of his judgments so we have time to repent. In Revelation, God is destroying evil and evil ones. And at the same time, and you're going to see it here, he's saving millions of people. At the same time, he's dismantling his planet and destroying evil. Both. Simultaneous. His mercy and his holiness. Now remember, last week we finished uh, the sixth chapter. And what's the last question in chapter six? The very last question in chapter six is what? Those of you that have a Bible... Who is able to stand in light of the six seal judgments we've seen so far, which really, really destroy a good chunk of the planet? Who's able to stand? Glad you asked. Chapter 7 answers that question. Chapter 7 is a parenthesis. It's a relief from the wrath of chapter 6 and the wrath of chapter 8. And we see God's mercy right in the middle of judgment. Between the seal judgment 6 and the seal judgment 7, which we'll get into next week, we see his mercy. Maybe a good question to ask at the end of chapter 6 is who is not able to stand? Who cannot stand? Who will not stand 
before God's judgment. Well, <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 3 says, the evil, the ungodly, the unrepentant will not stand. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 3, it's talking about the ungodly and it says, they will not escape. 2 Thessalonians 2 says, they always be judged who did not believe the truth. It doesn't say who were not exposed to the truth. It says they knew the truth and chose not to believe the truth, right? That's willful disobedience at that point. So we know the ungodly will not survive, will not stand God's judgment, but we do know a lot of people will survive the tribulation. They will escape the Antichrist Holocaust. They'll survive God's wrath on sin. They're going to survive Holocaust, wars, famine, pestilence. And we're going to meet some of these people right now in chapter 7. God protects these people for his divine purpose. You think God's pretty good at protecting people? Yep. He's protected you and I from a lot of stupidity for a lot of years, hasn't he? Right? He's going to protect us from more stupidity this afternoon. Because some of us are going to want to make bad decisions this afternoon. Some of us probably will make bad decisions this afternoon, and God's mercy will protect us. It's interesting, God used an ark to protect Noah's family from the flood. That was brought on by God to destroy the whole earth because of sin. God used angels to protect Lot and his wife and two daughters from the fire and brimstone that he brought on to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. God protected the entire nation of Israel and Egypt from his very own angel of death. What do they have to do? Put the blood on the doorposts in the shape of a cross at the Passover. How did God protect Rahab? God brought his invading armies in to judge the city of Jericho, a wicked place. He was going to save Rahab, and she had to hang out of her window. A scarlet rope that let the Israelites know that she was one of them. It says, God will protect you not necessarily from the storms of life, but through the storms of life. Where was Daniel when he got protected uh, from the lions? Sleeping with the lions. By the way, they usually kept these animals reasonably starved. Hunger management, right? Because so they would be really hungry and people would be consumed quickly, right? Well, when he got there, an angel was there with him, so he probably slept on the lions, but he didn't escape the den. Where were Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego when they had the fourth member the pre-incarnate Christ, in the fiery furnace. So we look at our life and we routinely say, Oh God, can you please save me from this trial? From this relative of mine that I can't get rid of, right? <laughs> can't even divorce a relative. I mean, they got the same blood, right? The same DNA, right? Or from this job that I've got. Or how about, how about protecting me from this health diagnosis I just got? How about taking it away? And sometimes he does. In his infinite mercy, sometimes God says, I'm going to save you from the fire. I'm going to save you from this trial that you're going through. A lot of times God says, I will save you through it. I'm going to be with you in it, right? In the health, in the finance, in the family, in the relationship, in the whatever it happens to be that we're going through at this point in time. So chapter 6 really is a vision of God's judgment on the ungodly, that's the six seal judgments, and chapter 7 is really a, a vision of God's protection of the godly. Now chapter 7 describes really two groups of people. It, this chapter you can divvy it up into two pieces, verses 1 through 8 and then 9 through 17. 1 through 8 describes 144,000 Jews who are sealed on earth. So the first eight verses are on earth. 
I'm on chapter 7, the first eight verses. Chapters 9 through 17 talks about an innumerable host of Gentiles. They're saved and they're in heaven. So two separate locations. The first eight verses are on earth. The second eight verses are on heaven. Let's dive into chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no one should blow on the earth or the sea or on any tree. Now, the word here after this is metatalta. That's the Greek that means we have a new vision. We have a new vision. We have a new chronology, another chronological sequence. So after the seven, six seals in chapter six, John has a new vision. He's now seeing the 144,000. So between the sixth and seventh seals, we see this picture in heaven or on earth right here. And there's four angels. Angels, by the way, are servants of God and they're created to worship and they're created to serve. They're created and dispatched by God to do two things. Here, one is execute judgment. Interestingly enough, here, the four angels are sent by God to withhold judgment, to literally hold back the wind of judgment. And it says they're standing on the four corners of the earth. And I've talked to, you know, people go, well, the, these people were really out of tune. They thought the earth was flat, it was a square, it had four corners. It's not a reference to a flat earth, it's a reference to four points on a compass. What do we say? Four points on a compass are north, south, east, west, right? That's pretty obvious. And they're holding back the four winds of the earth. And you say, what do they mean? Well, we describe winds by what? By direction. That was a cold north wind. That was a warm south wind. A nor'easter comes from the northeast. northeast. So we describe winds by direction. That's what he's talking about. Our four points on a compass and winds by direction at that point in time. It says they're literally holding back the wind. The Greek there is kratu. It means to grasp. It means to seize. You really have to grab these winds with, to restrain them at that point in time. So there's two pictures here. One, they literally are stopping all physical wind from blowing on the planet. It's actually a stoppage of all air circulation in the atmosphere. Now, wind, as you know, is energized by two things, primarily the sun's heat and two, the earth's rotation. Right? So you got Earth's rotation. So this is a supernatural stoppage of all wind. You don't have wind for any length of time. You don't have life. The hydrologic cycle evaporates water, takes it from over the ocean, and brings it over to Bakersfield where it's nice and dry. And we need what here? Water. Rain. You don't have any wind. You don't have any rain. Right? Because it doesn't move the clouds from where the water is to where the water needs to go. And that's where you get plant life, and that's where you get food etc etc so the picture here is the wind wants to move but it's being supernaturally held back from moving and it's also a picture of God withholding and restraining judgment of the seventh seal for a period of time look what it says it says holding back to four winds so and I saw another angel verse 2 ascending from the rising of the sun having the seal of the living God in his hand, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Interesting. So we have another angel here, same kind, but he's, he's giving a command to the other four. And what's the direction the uh, angel is coming from? From the east. Now I want you to think of something. Where is John when he's writing this? In the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. You know what's east and south of this location? Israel. Right? So... Where's the angel coming from? The direction of Israel. And it says the seal of the living God. Back in the day, even today, a seal is used to symbolize ownership, authentication, 
and protection, right? Remember we've talked about having a signet ring when you had a signet ring and you had your signet, your unique imprint in that ring and you would press it into wax or clay and you would leave your imprint, your identity, that was who you were at that point in time. And back in the day, in ancient times, when people went to a, a temple to worship their idol, many, many, many times they would get the image the signet, the unique identifying characteristic of that idol, they would tat it on their body. They would tattoo it on their body of that idol, so of that deity. So what they're basically saying with the tat is, I belong to this deity. I belong to this god or this goddess or this idol, whatever it happens to be. They would tat that image on their person at that point in time. And you say, well, Brad, this sounds real familiar. Because we know the most prominent false god in the book of Revelation is Antichrist. What's the Antichrist going to require? You put his mark on your forehead or on your hand, right? And when you put the mark on, it says, I'm identifying myself as belonging to this god, this Antichrist, this false god at that point in time. However, before that occurs, right here, God has his own seal his own mark, and he's going to put his own mark on these people, and that mark says, you belong to me, I'm protecting you, and I'm setting you aside, and I'm commissioning you for a job, and that's what he's got. Now, he did this once before in Ezekiel 9. If you really want to put your depends on and wet your pants, read Ezekiel 9. This is a significantly scary passage. Ezekiel 9 Israel is deep in idolatry, deep in sexual sin, deep in the murder of the innocent. By the way, that's us. There's not one thing Israel is doing that we don't do times 10. America is at, at least as wicked, if not more so, than Israel and Ezekiel 9. So God gives Ezekiel in this chapter a vision of a man with a writing case. He's wearing a linen garment. He's got a writing case that basically says he's got pencils and styluses and things like that to mark. And God commands this, this person to go throughout Jerusalem and put God's mark on the foreheads of God's people. He literally said, put a mark on the foreheads of the people who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in Jerusalem. So all the people in the city of Jerusalem, that the sin of that city really bothered them. I mean, it bothered their conscience. They were sighing and groaning and praying. God says, those people belong to me. You know why they belong to me? Because sin bothers them. We have gotten very insensitive to sin. We see stuff on television today that 40 years ago, you couldn't even get in an X-rated peep show. It's true. It's instantly available to you. God says, if, if sin bothers you, that's a sign that you belong to me, and I'm going to put my mark on you. And you say, okay, well, that's good. Here's the next part. After that, God commanded six executioners to go throughout the whole city. Everybody who did not have God's mark on them, kill them. Execute them. You go, whoa, 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 whoa. God takes this sin thing pretty seriously. Yeah, he takes it real seriously. Because what did we say our key idea is? God is holy. God hates sin. Sin is toxic to him because he knows sin is cancer to you. It will kill you. He loves you. Why would he put up with the sin in your life if he knows it's going to kill you? If you had a child that had cancer, you would say, we're going to go kill the cancer so I can save the life of my child. 
Our Heavenly Father is the same way. He loves us. Why would He want to tolerate it? He wants to eliminate this wickedness from our life. Now, the same thing is going to happen in Revelation. God's going to put His mark on people, and it demonstrates His ownership of them and protection of them. Verse 3, this angel says, Do not harm the earth or the seas or the trees until, underline the word until, we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Until. Here's the principle. Everything in God's kingdom has purpose, even divine delays. Have you all ever experienced a divine delay? And most of the time, when you experience a divine delay, you know what we're doing? Oh, God, why is this taking so long? Would you hurry up? Come on, get rid of the no-dos. I mean, wake up. Give me some help here, God. You must be on vacation. This is not happening in my timeline, right? It's a divine delay, which means he's probably trying to protect you from some stupidity that you're about ready to do, right? Now, the problem with Brad is I usually figure this out about 10 years later. And really embarrassing, some of them I haven't figured out yet. I still don't know why, but... Now I know that God is a good God, so when there's a divine delay in my, my life, it's by design. Right? It's by design. So God's judgment is ready to fall, but it's restrained temporarily because God wants to seal his bondservants before chapter 8 judgments fall. They already belong to God, by the way, these 144,000, but they're now being set apart for a specific purpose. And if you read chapter 7 and go to verse 4 through 8. God does something really interesting. He says, I'm going to seal 144,000 people and I'm going to seal them 12,000 from what? From every tribe of Israel. And you can read the list and there's 12 of them there and you go, oh my goodness, I don't see Dan, I don't see Ephraim, what's going on with this list, right? Just so you know, um, uh, Dave and I were talking earlier. There's 19 separate lists of Jacob's sons in the Bible. Almost none of them are the same, right? Sometimes they're listed in birth order, sometimes in census order, sometimes in order of blessing, sometimes in encampment order, sometimes who went first in the land, sometimes in travel order. So the lists of Jacob's sons are never in the same order. Well, they may be once or twice, and they don't always contain the same 12 people. Because jo Joseph had two sons, right? Manasseh and Ephraim, right? And Levi was seldom in the list because he didn't have any land. He was set apart to the Lord. So the point is, this, this list has generated more discussion than you can shake a stick at. Assuming that God means what he says and, me and says what he means. That's a good assumption, by the way. God says what he means, means what he says. Take this list in a straightforward way. God's going to select 12,000 Jews from each one of the 12 tribes. He's going to put his mark on them. He's going to set them apart for a specific purpose. And I can hear it right now. Well, how's that going to happen? Because no Jew knows their tribal identity. All the records were destroyed in AD 70. Well, I mean, you know, when, when, when Rome conquered Jerusalem, all those records were destroyed. But God numbers all the hairs on your head. He has to work less hard for Jeff Cornell, by the way, but he, know, he numbers... <laughs> Numbers all, yeah. He knows all the hair on your head. Jeff, I'm right behind you, buddy. Hang in there. And he knows the days of your life, right? They're ordained. So we got a pretty good idea. God doesn't have a problem knowing the genealogical records of which tribe belongs to who, right? So the, 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 the important thing to understand is the implication of this list. 
what is vitally important you understand. And this is a massive division point in biblical interpretation. God has a future plan for national Israel. The church does not replace Israel. I grew up in an amillennial, postmillennial, really, tradition that said the church has replaced Israel since Israel screwed up. God has taken the blessings from the church and or from the Israel and given to the church. If you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, you understand that God made unconditional promises to the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament that did not depend on their faithfulness. God says, I am going to bring you into a land and David will be your king and this kingdom will last forever and I will be your Messiah, etc., etc. You must absolutely understand that God has a future plan for national Israel. It is endemic throughout Scripture. That is a major point of differentiation in how people interpret Revelation. Because there are good scholars that would argue with me on that. And I would go back to our hermeneutic model if you interpret Scripture in a literal, common sense, God's mean what He says and says what He means, then you'll look at this chapter, uh, verses 4 through 8, and you go, He must mean the 12 tribes. He's, he said. I mean, He lists them, right? I've read six commentaries that said, Oh, He's talking about the church there, and I'm going... Well, let's see, Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, he's pretty clear, right? When God makes common sense, don't go seeking any other sense at that point. But that's a major point. If you're looking for some reference there, there's a boatload. Read Romans 9 through 11. All right. Now, if you want to know more about this 144,000, turn to Revelation 14. I'm just two verses there, Revelation 14. He gives us a little bit more complete description about this 144,000. Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Verse 4. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They were blameless. Here's the principle. Jesus bought you because He loves you. You follow Him because you love Him. That's pretty easy, right? So here's the question. Do you follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That's a little tougher. Most of us would say, well, I follow Jesus. Sure, I follow Jesus. Wherever he goes? What about if he's going to a place where you don't want to go? You still follow. Yeah, I do, but I kind of slow down a little bit. And so he's about a half mile up front, but I got my eye on him, I got my eye on him. How closely do you follow the lamb? You know, if we, if we take a picture of a sheep and a shepherd, how close does the shepherd want the sheep behind him? Touching his robe. Wants them to, he wants them to be that close. Our father sent his son to redeem us because he wants a relationship with us. That's why he bought us back from the slave market of sin. We follow him because we want to be with him. See, the seal on their foreheads was the name of the Lamb. God put his mark on them to say, you belong to me. 
I'm going to protect you, and I've set you apart for specific service. It says they were morally pure and blameless. That's a criteria for service. We have the righteousness of Christ. But the one I want you to camp on is, is the one that says they were the first fruits to God. Underline that. First fruits means the initial, it means the first of the harvest. When you planted a crop over a period of weeks, by the way, when you plant, you just go and go, go to get a big planter and do 12, 15 rows at a time. You scattered seed, right? And you had to walk. So there's only so much acreage you could cover in a day. So typically, you would plant some crop, then another crop, I mean, some of the same crop, and you did it over a period of weeks. Guess what? If you plant earlier, what comes up earlier? What you planted earlier, right? So when you had the crop coming in at that point in time, what you planted earlier ripened earlier. The first fruits were the very first ripe portion of your crop. And God wanted that as a sacrifice in the Old Testament. But it was also an indication that there was going to be a crop to come. The full crop was going to come. So the first fruits were just a little taste. In, for you foodies, it's an appetizer. Right? It's an appetizer. You're just going to see a little appetizer of the banquet to follow. That's what the first fruits is at that point in time. It's also kind of like a down payment, right? <laughs> yes, I'm going to pay for the house, but I'm going to put a down payment on as earnest money to demonstrate that I've got the capital to pay for this house. So Zechariah tells us that this first fruits, these 144,000, are only the beginning of a massive Jewish evangelism that's going to occur during this tribulation period. If you want some cross-reference here, Zechariah 12 to 14 tells us that Israel is going to repent and return to their Messiah. Zechariah 14, 9. Zechariah 14, 9. They, Israel, will call on my name and I, God, will answer them. I, God, will say they are my people and they, Israel, will say the Lord is my God. Romans 11, 26 says... All Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. So Israel is going to come to faith in Christ. This 144,000 is just the first group. It's the first fruits. It's the down payment, if you will, at that point. Later on, we're going to find out this 144,000 is really the missionary core that Jesus is going to use to preach the gospel throughout the seven-year period. You must understand that even though tribulation is occurring, judgment's occurring, the planet's falling apart, the gospel is preached for the whole seven years. And these 144,000 are evangelists. They're missionaries. And God's going to use them to do a mighty work and bring in millions and millions and millions of people for himself. He promised this, by the way, in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 14, he said, This gospel of the kingdom, he's talking to his disciples, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached, where? To the whole world. And then the end will come. So Jesus told him, Matthew 24, this was going to happen. Okay, let me give you the context. You're on planet Earth. We have about 7.1 billion people. 7.16. The rapture occurs before chapter 4. We have the literal, physical disappearance of over a billion people. Gone. Twinkling of an eye, right? We know it's going to happen. How does the rest of the world deal with that? How does the rest of the world explain the disappearance of well over a billion people? They were here and they're gone. I don't want to be on an airplane with believing pilots. Right? I mean, they're gone. Okay, what's going to happen? Or you're on the surgery table and you've got spirit-filled Christians and they're gone. Who's going to finish the surgery? Well, number one, if you're still on the table, you've got a problem, right? I mean, you know. <laughs> 
you want to be going with them and then you don't worry about surgery. Yeah, a whole series called Left Behind was written on that. But the disappearance of a billion plus people is going to shock the world. And you know something? Millions of people are going to start reading their Bibles, including Jewish people. The Holy Spirit's going to use his written word, gospel tracts, recorded messages. He's going, to use, he's going to bring back to mind, the Holy Spirit will bring back to mind your witness to people. If, they're not, if they're, not, they're not going with you, the Holy Spirit's going to bring that back to them. And millions will come to faith during that period of time. Even the yeah, of course. Now, go to verse 9. We've got the 144,000 set apart for their work of service. We have God restraining judgment until he can anoint his missionary corps of 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And now John gets a vision of heaven. We're back into heaven in verse 9, and he's going to start seeing the consequences of their faithful ministry. And it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. Get your pen out. From every nation, underline nation, and all tribes, underline tribes, and peoples and tongues. John is going through the dictionary here trying to give you a clue that it's every people group on the planet is standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hand. Now, when you compare the 144,000 Jewish evangelists with this group, there's a couple of contrasts. Number one, the 144,000 are on earth. Yes? This group's in heaven, so we have a different geography at that point. The first group is composed only of Jews, and it's a limited size, 144,000. How many people are on this group? Nobody knows. You can't count them. That's how many there are at that point in time. And <clears throat> they're in heaven. The first group is set apart for work and warfare on the planet. And what are these people doing up here? They're having a party, right? I mean, this is celebration time. Their work is over. Their rest is, is upon them and they're worshiping. So the 144,000 are going to be protected through the tribulation, right? This group is taken out of the tribulation. They're in heaven. Now, I realize that some of you are saying, well, you know, Lord, if you could take me to heaven today, painless, like Elijah or Enoch, I'd be ready to go. Because life down here is hard. You know something? It is hard. I've got news for you. It's going to get harder. It is going to get harder. It, your life is not going to get easier from a circumstantial standpoint. Don't ever put your hope in easier circumstances. Maybe my life will get easier. Give it up. You're getting older. Look in the mirror. It ain't going to get easier. It ain't getting purtier either. Okay? It's harder and it's going to be harder. But here's the good news. The harder it gets, the more of the anointing, the more of the empowering, the more of the equipping you have of the Holy Spirit to deal with what you need to deal with. Amen. See, we look at our circumstances, we go, God, I never knew it was going to be this hard. You're right. If you did, you never would have signed up. <laughs> right? But you didn't ask to be born. God has a plan for your life at this point. But those of you who are in the middle of struggle and strife and trouble and you're walking with faith, you know Jesus in ways today you never knew him 20 years ago, 10 years ago. And if your life would have been all happy high notes, tiptoe through the tulips, can you relate to people like that? <laughs> tiptoe through the tulips people? Yeah. Everything is always good. It's always happy. 
You're looking and you're going, mm, I don't think you and I are on the same planet, bud. Right? The planet I live in has brokenness. It's broken people. But you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You have the equipping and you have the Word of God to guide you. So you know Jesus far better than you would if everything was good. Now, this vision had to be really encouraging to John. John is on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled. There's only a few congregations, a few thousand congregations throughout the world. And you know something? The church in his day was very weak. It was very small. It was very persecuted. They were scared they were going to go out of existence. John's all by himself on the island. And now he sees the victory of the gospel. He sees the victory of the gospel. He sees the worldwide impact of the gospel. He sees a group so big you can't even count them. That had to be massively encouraging to John. They're standing before the Lamb. They're in the very presence of God. They have died and gone to heaven. We don't know how they died, whether some of them were martyred. Some of them died in natural causes. Some of them got, you know, taken out by one of God's judgments on the planet. By the way, you know all these judgments we've been talking about? There's a lot of God's people that go to heaven that way. Right? Right? It says, remember we talked last week, there's war. Do you think Christians are going to get killed in the coming war? How about famine? It says after the war came famine, the black horse. You think Christians are going to go to heaven as a result of famine? Yeah. How about pestilence, disease? We talked about the, you know, the, the, the black horse. We saw famine's going to be a real problem. Do you think that the, the trials of life are going to send some of us to heaven? Of course. How you get there is not the important thing. That you get there is the important thing. Right? That's what's important. So John sees them standing before the throne, which means they're in heaven. They're in their reward. They're done with the troubles of this world. They're clothed in white robes. White is always a symbol for purity. They have been given the righteousness of Christ. And it says they have palm branches. Now, you know what palm branches are? Palm branches are party balloons in the ancient world. They were celebration. If you had palm branches, it was a party balloon. It says we're having a party, we're having a celebration. Right? It's a good time. That's what palm branches symbolized at that point. And they are, in fact, celebrating. Verse 10 says they're a celebration of worship. They cry out with a loud voice, salvation to our God who sits on the throne to the Lamb. Here's the principle. Salvation triumphs over sin and suffering. In the middle of tribulation and judgment, Jesus saves. You must understand this. When you read the rest of this book and you see this planet falling apart, Jesus is saving millions of people out of the tribulation. That should give you vast hope because it shows you the triumph of the gospel. The gospel is going to triumph. Absolutely. You may not see it yet. It's going to triumph. And they're singing, salvation belongs to our God. It means God is a source of salvation. There's no human works you can add to it. Salvation is something you receive, not something you can achieve, right? It's a gift of God. Amen? Amen. What did mama always tell you to do when you receive a gift? Say thank you. What are these people doing? They're thanking Jesus for the salvation they received. And you look at the world they came out of, you go, well, where all it came out of is war, persecution, martyrdom, famine, pestilence, cosmic disturbances, and now I'm in heaven. You think there's a contrast? You think they're grateful they're there? Uh-huh. How often do you thank God for your salvation? I'm telling you, one of the things that encourages me tremendously is ev almost every Sunday in one of the services we see baptisms taking place. 
That is a picture of buried and resurrected. That's a picture of new life. And we sometimes forget. We've been in Christ for a long time. We go, oh, yeah, 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 God's good. The Bible, you know, I got the word of God. I got friends. I've got church, you know. But you know something? Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget where you came from. I mean, I'm not much now, but I was a lot worse 30 years ago. Marin will attest to that, right? <laughs> Seriously, and you were too. Don't forget where he brought you from. That should build gratitude. So they say thank you. They're a good model for us. Verse 11. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And these angels, living creatures, and elders, what do they do? They fall on their faces before the throne and they worship God. So the, the, the saved people, this multitude of humans that's, that are praising God, they set the example, the angels, the elders, the four living creatures, they fall on their face too. And they say, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to be our God. This is a sevenfold character description of God. Amen, by the way, means so be it. So be it. When someone says amen, brother, they mean let it be just like you said. So be it. And they say blessing or praise. That the Greek there is eulogia or eulogy. It means a good word. Someone has a eulogy at a, at a memorial service. It means you're saying a good word about that person. Here's a little comment to you. How often do you speak well of God? How often do you speak well of God? Versus not speak well of Him. His character is worthy of speaking well of. One of the ways you do that is to recount what He's done. Read, read, read the Psalms, good example. Glory, that's doxa, where we get doxology from. It means weighty, gravitas. Something that's worthy of glory is something that's worthy of recognition based on its, its weight, its reputation. Wisdom, Sophia, that's the Greek. It means God's infinite knowledge that's displayed in his plan of salvation. Thanksgiving is Eucharistia. Eucharist, for those of you that come from a Roman Catholic background, you know when they say the Eucharist? It means Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving. It's the gratitude for a favored rendered. We just talked about that. Gratitude for your salvation. Honor. Honor has to do with that which is rare and precious, like precious stones. You value but is what is valuable, right? Interesting question. What do you value most in life? Just, just think about it. I don't care what you say. All I know is we can look at your behavior and we can tell. Where you put your time and where you put your money are pretty good evaluators of what you value. There's an old hymn tune, Jesus' Priceless Treasure. Where your time and where your money goes reveals where your heart is, where your priorities are. Power, dunamis. Dunamis, where we get the word dynamite. It's talking about the dynamite of God, God's omnipotence, God's ability to overcome all opposition. And the last character trait of Jesus, the last sevenfold there is iscus. It's mighty. It has to do with endurance. How many of you have read Psalm 40? <clears throat> I'm sorry, Isaiah 40. What's the last part of that? God never gets weary. God never gets tired. You'll run and not weary. You'll walk and not faint. I'm glad I've got a God that doesn't wear out after 23 miles on the marathon, right? We have a God that endures. We have a God who doesn't get tired. He doesn't have to take a nap. So they're, 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 they're telling God the truth about who he is. They're giving us a sevenfold description of his character. And one of the elders, one of the 24 elders, has a little conversation with John, a little sidebar here, verse 13, and he says, you see these people clothed in white? Who are they? And where are they from? Now, how does John deal with a question he doesn't know the answer to? 
What does he say? He said, you know. By the way, if, you're, if you ever ask your child or your grandchild a question that they don't know the answer to, they would be very smart if they said, Nana, you know. You will go, oh, that's worth a lot of goodies right there, you know, if your three-year-old does that to you at that point in time. So this, by the way, the questioner was just checking to see if John knows the answer. John doesn't know the answer, but he did know the elder did. He said, my Lord, you know. And the elder's going to answer the question for him. He says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This whole group that is around the throne, so large you can't even number them, they all came to Christ after the rapture. Every one of them came to Christ after the rapture. Do you understand that? Within a seven-year period. Actually, most of this is within the first three and a half years. We're not even in the midpoint yet, right? The first three and a half years. So there's massive evangelism going on in the middle of great persecution. Millions and millions come to faith during this period of time. They also have white robes. And then he gives us a paradox. How did they wash their robes and how did they make them white? Do you know that blood is one of the hardest stains to remove? It's very difficult to take blood out of a white garment or a light garment. It's, and this is a paradox. The way you make yourself clean and white is through blood. The blood of the lamb, special kind of blood. The blood means the death, the sacrifice of the lamb. So to be spiritually white, you must be washed from the filth of your sin. And there's only one detergent in the universe that's strong enough to wash you from your sin. And that's the detergent of the blood of the Lamb. Right? So it's basically saying, these folks that are here in heaven, they got there because of the Lamb, not because of themselves. So this is all about the Lamb. This is about the gift of God. This is about the righteousness of Christ. It says, verse 15, For these reasons... They are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne shall spread his tent over them, his tabernacle. They're in the presence of the one they love. Now, here's an interesting question. I know you all know the answer. When you love someone, assuming that you do, right? Generally, you want to be with them or you want to be separated from them? Generally. I know you can find some examples. I can take them in real small pieces, Brad. Just a little bit is enough. A long time. You know, I love this person, but about five minutes is good for a week. You know, I mean, you have some people like that in your life? Yes, I love them in real small doses, right? They're really toxic. Get more than that and I'm going to OD and die. This is a healthy relationship that Jesus has with the, his people, right? His people. They want to be with him forever. That's the whole point of heaven. What did we say? Together forever, right? God and people, together forever. God and people together. That's what heaven is, relationship. So the hunger of their heart has been satisfied because they're in the presence of their first love. And God says, I'm going to put my tent over you which means I'm going to protect you, I'm going to enclose you, I'm going to give you safety and protection and acceptance, right? Verse 16 tells you a little bit about the benefits. They shall hunger no more, no thirst anymore, no have the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. By the way, when you look at the troubles they had on earth, meteor impacts, volcanoes, earthquake, war, famine, disease, it says we'll get down to the trumpet judgments, and there's going to be a, one of the judgments is going to have radiant heat coming out of the sun that's going to scorch everything on the planet, right? So sunscreen will not help that one, right? It, it's just, you're going to just get burned at that point in time. So God has removed all these troubles from their life, 
all these troubles from the life. I used to think one of the benefits of heaven would be that God will remove the troubles from my life and most of my troubles in life are with people. So I would not be around those people in heaven. I think that I will be surprised at some of the people I see in heaven. I think some of those people are going to be very surprised that I'm there. <laughs> you're going to see people in heaven, you're going to go, you? Really? And you're going to look at the throne and you're going to see the, the lamb and the lamb goes, covered with my blood. And by the way, you are covered with my blood too. That's the only reason you got here. So a little humility goes a long way. Verse 17, for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of water and God will up every cheer for this. Here's the paradox. Who's the shepherd? Jesus. The no, no, no. The lamb. The lamb, the lamb is the shepherd. This is, by the way, a pet lamb. We're talking about a little pet lamb a few months old as a shepherd. It's one of the paradoxes of Scripture. The lion and the lamb. The lamb is also going to do some judging here coming up at that point. But this lamb leads them to life-giving water. He comforts them, wipes away their tears and their suffering. So in the middle of judgment, in the middle of a planet that God is repossessing and he's going to dismantle it to repossess it, in the middle of this painful suffering on planet Earth, you get a picture of heaven. You get a picture of rest and comfort, and redemption, and peace. God is saying, I am merciful, and I am holy at the same time. Right? I'm going to judge sin because I know how lethal it is, but I want to save people from the destruction to come by the millions, and he's going to do that. Here's the good news. You can be a part of that today. You can be a part of that before you get raptured, because you know when you get raptured, your opportunity for evangelism stops. You don't want to get to heaven and go, you know, I had a lot of opportunities I just let go, right? He said over and over in Revelation, behold, I am what? Coming quickly, soon. All right, let's review. Here's the key idea. God is both holy and merciful. God's holiness hates sin and God's mercy restrains and holds back his judgment to give people time to repent and be saved. Everything in God's kingdom has purpose, including divine delays. This week, I promise you, some of you are going to run into a divine delay, and you're going to think it's somebody else's stupidity. It's not. It's a divine delay, right? <laughs> Number three, Jesus bought you because he loves you. you. You follow him because you love him. Here's the question. Do you follow the lamb wherever he goes? And how close do you follow Lastly, salvation triumphs over sin and suffering in the middle of tribulation and judgment Jesus is still in the business of redeeming people. All right. I love you all. That's why I tell you the truth. That's why God's word always speaks truth to our hearts. This should be an encouragement. Next week, we're going to open the seventh seal, chapter 8. Be in prayer. Read ahead. And now that you know, do.